Christ came fill truths that were foreshadowed in the old covenant people. Uh, they were the three offices that were anointed to become a prophet. You were anointed to become a priest. There was a service of anointing to become king of Israel. There was a, an anointing service and anointing the anointed person, the anointed one in the language of the, the Hebrew of the Old Testament was Messiah, which means anointed. In the New Testament, Greek, it's Christ, but that's the same word. It's pointing to the one who is anointed. And those three offices were not only present in the Old Testament, but separated from one another. But they were promised, as we heard this morning, in, in the promise that Moses gave to the people that the day would come when God would send them another prophet that they needed to listen to. Now, God sent many prophets, but he was speaking here of one who would be different than the others, one through whom uniquely God would speak. And we're going to be focusing this morning on that first, uh, the, the parts of these opening verses that address the Christ as God's prophet, the one who speaks on God's behalf to us. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Prophet, priest, king, why these three? Because first of all, we need someone to tell us whether or not there's a God, to tell us who we are, where we're from, where we're going, what we are meant to be. We need, once we discover that word, once that word finds us, we realize that we need a priest to make atonement for our sins. The prophet speaks on God's behalf to us, the priest speaks to God on our behalf and makes atonement for us for our sins. And then we need a king to lead us on to the end of the journey, to lead us to what God has promised for us. And this is why these three offices come together in the Christ. And I just, before we start, want to make one comment. My problem with the biblical prophecy charts is that until it happens, you don't have a clue how it's going to happen. And I can prove it with prophet, priest, and king. If you only had the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, you would read of a prophet, but there would be nothing in it that would indicate that that prophet would also be the priest and king. When you read of the priest, when you read of the king, these are discrete individual places. You read in Isaiah of the suffering servant who's going to suffer for the sake of the people. 
all these look like totally different people. And if an Old Testament person reading the scriptures had said, you know what, I think that's probably talking all about the same person, he would have been accused of handling scripture carelessly and not having a high view of scripture. But when Jesus came, then suddenly those with eyes to see, ears to hear, looked and said, this is the one of whom all these prophecies were being made all in one. So study prophecy and seek by God's grace. Most prophecy is not predictive. Most of it is addressing injustice, oppression, the, the wickedness of the people of God. Most of it is talking to God's people and saying you're not living like what you are. And we need to hear that from Old Testament and New. But study the predictive prophecy, but remember that Moses said, if someone comes and prophesies and it doesn't happen, he's not a real prophet, put him to death. Well, if we did that today, there'd be a lot fewer Christian TV stations. <laughs> because I'm just saying, nearly all who make prophecies have made prophecies that manifestly have not come true. I won't get into politics to suggest what some of those recently have been, but just saying, okay, to today's text. Really since, I would say, the middle of the last century, up through what is now almost a quarter of this 21st century, hard to believe, um, a theme in philosophy, in literature, in theology, in art, in movies, has been the silence of God. Often it's subtly depicted, but you'll be halfway through a book or halfway through a movie, and you realize the theme behind this is, in the face of all of this, why is God silent? After the tremendous optimism of the 19th and early 20th century, the idealistic philosophy and theology, the two great world wars, and then the reality of the Holocaust and of the atomic bomb and the horrors unleashed on the world, caused people in the 1950s to begin to ask, where is God in the midst of this? How could a, a God all-powerful and all-loving permit this to happen? And then with the resurgent economy and good feelings of the 80s, much of that diminished and evangelicalism made a huge resurgence and we had the fastest growing and biggest churches or at least things that called themselves churches uh, dotting the American landscape. And then with 9-11, the question came back powerfully. Where is God? Why doesn't he speak? And yet when we go to the scripture with that question, as so often happens when we go to the scripture, the entire thing flips. And I would say it doesn't flip onto its head, it flips finally right side up. And the question isn't about the silence of God, it's about the deafness of humanity. I heard uh, 
story of a fellow who went to his doctor and told him, my wife is very sensitive about my talking about physical things, you know, if she needs to see a doctor or get glasses or whatever, but I'm quite sure that she's going deaf. And I don't know how to approach this with her. And the doctor said, well, just go home and begin speaking to her and see at what point she can hear you. So he got home. She was in the kitchen with her back to him. And he started walking in and he said, what's for dinner? Nothing. He walked closer, said, what's for dinner? Nothing. Got right up behind her, said, what's for dinner? And she turned around and said, for the third time. <laughs> now, that is exactly the position of humanity. When you look at it through the scriptures, it is not that God is not speaking. It's that we are not listening. And so we're told here in this beautiful opening verse, long ago, many times, many ways, God has been speaking. He's been speaking all along to put it in the broader narrative of scripture. It's not just through the prophets. Psalm 19 says, the heavens are telling the glory of God. The skies above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night declares knowledge. And the, and the psalmist says there's nowhere in the world where that word doesn't go. And so Paul, picking that theme up in some verses that we read a few weeks ago, the last half of Romans chapter 1, says people are without excuse because, he says, ever since creation, what can be known about God, his power, his divine attributes, have been clearly displayed in the things that have been made. But he says people chose instead to turn our backs on God's glory and to worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. And don't we all struggle with that? We want his gifts. When I am in crisis, when there are people I love who are in great difficulty, my prayers are of a different character than when everything seems great. I wake up, the sun's shining, all is well, you know, it's family seems to be doing all right. I, I pray, I, I pray my prayers, but they're of a different character. And so we are so often seeking not God, but his gifts, the blessings, the things we want, the things that he longs to pour out on his people, if in that moment they're the best thing for us. So the first thing is the larger narrative is just the natural revelation, the general revelation of the universe and also within our conscience. The, uh, the German philosopher Immanuel Kant said, we have the starry heavens above, there's the testimony in the universe to God's reality, and the moral imperative within. There is within every one of our hearts the testimony of conscience and even though anthropologists often tried to emphasize the vast differences between tri tribes and tongues and people and nations, the reality is that basically the Ten Commandments are written on the hearts of every culture that is called a culture, even what we from our perspective might call primitive. 
They might say the people across the river are not really human or they're our enemies and they're like animals. So you can do what you want to them. But this side of the river, you worship our gods and don't disrespect them. You don't kill from our tribe. You don't just take any man or woman that you want. You don't steal. It's written on our hearts. It's always there. And even those who choose to live in total violation of the law of God want their neighbors to keep God's law. I mean, you might be a, a thief, but you sure don't want to live in the middle of thieves. And so we have this deeply there. It's the testimony that we are more than simply animals, that there is something else going on here, that there is that ethical imperative. There is right and wrong and we know intuitively that we will answer for it. And so we know, if we're at all spiritually sensitive and we put all that together, that unless we have a clear word directing us, we're in serious trouble. And so the author of Hebrews says, many times, many ways, God has been sending his prophets. He's been speaking through his prophets. And the early church taught that many of the philosophers, I don't know if I agree with this, but they saw, they numbered Plato and Socrates among the prophets pre-revelation uh, that were at least calling people to live in a way that had an eye toward eternity and toward the future. But we have the prophets of Israel and what they've left us by God's grace. And I hear from time to time, just read the New Testament. That's where the gospel is. If you ever want to become a Bible student, read the Old Testament. The New Testament makes no sense apart from the Old Testament. Those aren't separate things. God didn't try this and it didn't work, so he decided to do this. The, the new is the fulfillment of the old. That's why prophet, priest, and king fulfillment. And so you study that to learn what God is doing. Now imagine, imagine a book consisting of historical narrative, prophecy, apocalypse, poetry, wisdom literature, king lists. Imagine a book like that written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years. Imagine a book begun by Julius Caesar and completed by Columbus. That's the Bible. That's the spread. And yet you, you read it and you realize there is one narrative, one narrative in this book that is written by people who did not know each other. And it is telling me the story of where I came from and where God wants me to go and how God in his grace aims to get me there. And we have that, but he says, God has spoken most clearly through his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And just think of how he describes him here. Listen again to these words, verse three. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature 
God's glory. Remember, I said a minute ago that Paul said, we choose to turn our backs on God's glory in order to worship and serve the creature. God's aim is to show us his glory because we were created to behold his glory and reflect his glory. And so in the old covenant, when God appeared, I, I hear people say, when I get to heaven, I want to walk up to Jesus and say this. I mean, whenever God appeared in, in whatever form, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, people fell on their faces as if they were dead. When Jesus humbled himself, came in the flesh, when Peter suddenly realized who he was in the presence of, he fell on his face and said, depart from me, I'm a wicked man. When Jesus in the garden was about to be arrested and for a moment he spoke that I am, we read that they fell down before him. That's the glory of God. And for those who, like Paul, when he describes in 2 Corinthians 3, he says we, not like the Israelites who wanted Moses to veil his face when he came from God's presence, so that they wouldn't have to see the fading away of the glory of God in his face. We, with unveiled faces, are beholding his glory in the face of Jesus Christ and being changed from one degree of glory to another. How does that happen? It happens when day by day, whatever other part of the scripture we are studying deeply, we don't let ourselves go a day without just walking into the gospels and standing in Jesus' presence. Read one of those little paragraph stories are called pericopes. And you read one of those little things and you just sit with it because you realize when I'm reading that, I am seeing who God is. I am seeing who I was created to be as made in the image and likeness of God. And I am seeing who by grace God will one day make me. Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, is the outshining of that glory. And I have occasionally had the great privilege of seeing it, not perhaps with physical eye, but so feeling it that I remember it as having seen it in the face of people who powerfully influenced me. During the midst of the Rwandan crisis, I was in what was still then Zaire, and it was dark, and it was in revolution, and there was violence everywhere. And I walked into the Anglican compound with a bishop, now he's archbishop, where the bishop was Emmanuel Collini. And you felt the oppression lift. The place was light. The glory of God was in that place in the midst of all the darkness because it was a place where his kingdom had come because his will was being done. I saw it in the face of my father when I went up, when he was an old man and I went up to Montreat to visit and they didn't know I was coming and I just stopped and went in and my mother said, your dad's out walking. And he came in and all I can describe it as, his face was shining. And he just looked at me and for a minute, I think didn't recognize me for a minute and then he started laughing. And he said, oh son, Jesus is more real to me than you are the shining face of those who live in the presence of the Lord. 
the time that I've just seen it, most beautifully displayed in a natural human form, and seen that glorious beauty for which we were created, has been every time I've stood up front and watched a bride come down the aisle. And I can only tell you that they were glowing in a way I'd never seen them glow before. And if I could see the groom, I'm sure I'd see the reflected glory from his face. I don't mean to be schmaltzy, but we're made for that. That's what God made us for. That we don't usually live up to it. I remember, sorry, I, dear friend Steve Chesney, head of Young Life in our part of the world. I was at a wedding that he did. Bridegroom, the bride were standing there. And he said to the groom, you're looking at her and you're hoping she never changes. But she's going to change. She's going to grow. She's going to become someone you can't even conceive. You just need to realize she's going to change. And then he turned to her and said, you're looking at him and you're thinking, oh, I hope he changes. He <laughs> Steve, said, Steve said, he will never change. Just get that to you. But by God's grace, here's the way for men and women to be transformed. It's as Paul says, it's gazing into the face of Jesus as he appears to us in the scriptures and as we experience him in worship in the midst of the people of God. Final thing I would say, what, what is this express image of his nature? What does that mean? The word that the author of Hebrews uses is the Greek word character. Uh, um, I probably am mispronouncing it badly, but it's, you hear what word it is. We get the, the English word character directly from it. And in the ancient world, it was a stamp, carefully constructed metal that was used to inscribe something exactly. And it's saying, if you want to know who God is, this is the express picture of who God is. And it's utterly unlike the God of the religions. The God of the religions prefers religious people. But Jesus was always in trouble with the religious people. The Presbyterian pastors were always upset with him because he chose to sit and have table fellowship with people that they thought were not worthy. He looked at unclean lepers and touched them and made them whole. He let a woman of questionable reputation wash his feet and pour ointment on him. He came to seek and to save the lost. That's who God is. <laughs> that's who our Father is. And that's what he's called you and me to be about. That's what we're to be doing. We're to be after those that no one else really loves and cares about. And of course, the up-and-outers need it too, because they're as lost as the down-and-outers. As Tim Keller so beautifully pointed out in his little book, The Prodigal God, the person in the greatest danger is not the prodigal, but the elder brother.
Jesus came to show us what true elder brothers are to be. So there's our prophet. There's who our father is. He's just like Jesus. So whoever you are, whatever you have done, however you have failed, however disappointed you are in yourself, however much you have been put down and told that you're beyond the pale, you are not, you are utterly unique in this entire history of the world, and God has made you for himself. But as Augustine pointed out, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. So if your heart is restless, I would invite you to cry out to him as we prepare to go to this table. This table doesn't belong to this church. It belongs to Jesus Christ 